Revelation, the 21st chapter. I'll be reading the whole chapter. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal." And he measured the wall thereof a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, a topaz, the tenth, a chrysoprasus, the eleventh, jathans, the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve parts, were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. 
and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're still looking at the beginning of this, and of course our memory verse for the week and uh, the last uh, couple of times is verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And we're looking at uh, heaven and the new earth. Of course, heaven now being a, an intermediate state. Uh, oftentimes we think of, of heaven as being our permanent home. When we die, we go to heaven and we'll stay there forever. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, we do go to heaven when we die, but heaven won't be forever. Uh, when, this, when the Lord determines that this will be the, the, we'll have the last day on this earth and the earth uh, uh, will be, will be, there'll be a new earth uh, and there'll be a new heaven. And if, if we're in heaven at that time, if we'd already died and we're in heaven, uh, we will come down from that heaven and we will be on the new earth, and we'll live in, in our resurrected bodies. People in heaven are only in their souls now, but they'll get a resurrected body once the, once the new earth and new heaven is created. Um, so um, we're looking at uh, some aspects of what life in heaven is like and what we can know about death. We've looked at this uh, before, and I thought we might look at it again in terms of, of a few different, uh, few different observations. Uh, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. And we just read the uh, 15th chapter. We're going to take a look at the 16th chapter. Uh, We'll begin with verse 19. And, of course, this is the Lord Jesus uh, telling this uh, story. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, what did we just read? Is that a parable? Well, we have to know what a parable is in order to identify a parable. A parable is 
you might think of a parable as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable has a moral lesson. Whether or not the people or events actually were real and it actually occurred is really not the point of a parable. The meaning of a parable doesn't depend on whether or not it's a report of an actual event with real people. For example, uh, the parable we, we know the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the parable of the sower who threw some seeds on rocky ground and on good ground. Uh, the point of those parables is not whether it's describing actual people and events. The point is the meaning, or what we would call the moral of the story. The fact that it may never have happened is taken for granted as not being the point. It's not really relevant to what Jesus wants us to learn in a parable. Again, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So to decide if the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable or not, uh, and what it can teach us about heaven, which is really a major part of the point, uh, we have to know the definition of a parable. A parable has at least four elements, and you have to have these four elements to have a parable. Um, Number one, a parable is a story from everyday life. Uh, So the everyday life of the people that heard the parable, particularly we're talking Jesus' parables in first century Israel, um, things that were familiar to them. Uh, Secondly, it has ordinary events, uh, circumstances that they could understand. Uh, So we have a story from everyday life, and then it has events and circumstances from the ordinary everyday life that people can relate to, such as plants growing and budding uh, or buying and selling or the relationships of masters and servants. And they could have this very simple language, simple ideas, but again, with a big idea behind it. Number three, the characters are not particularly important. You know, in Jesus' parables, the characters don't have names. Do you ever think about that? There's the, I, I may be wrong. You can, you can call me on this if you find it, but I don't know of any other parables uh, other, other than uh, uh, this one uh, where people are named. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's the prodigal son and the father and the brother or the servant or a farmer or, or whoever, but no names. Number four, there's no attempt to identify the exact location where the parable happened. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions, but mostly where these things happen or supposedly happen is not the point. It's not even mentioned. You know, a farmer went out to plow his field or whatever it might be. So the purpose of a parable is to teach this moral lesson, not to p- make people imitate what, what happens in the parable. Uh, for example, a parable of a good shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep is not to instruct people in how to find lost sheep. It's not a lesson in animal husbandry. Uh, It's obviously a larger point uh, than that. So if you apply the characteristics of a parable to the story of the rich man and Lazarus, I think you'll find it cannot be a parable. It's not a story from everyday life. These are not ordinary circumstances that everyone is familiar with. They weren't familiar with heaven and hell and what goes on there to any degree. Uh, The scene is described in a lot more detail than parables, usually. Uh, If it's to teach a moral lesson, that lesson is pretty obscure. Uh, It seems to teach that we ought to do something, maybe witness to our loved ones while we're still alive, or perhaps you could take that as a moral out of it. So what is this story of the rich man and Lazarus? Well, there's another clue. Uh, As I said, people are named. Uh, And they were real people. Uh, There were real people that were named Abraham, as we know. 
Uh, and apparently, I think it's, it's fair to say there probably was a real person named... It's not the Lazarus, by the way, that was raised from the dead by Jesus. This is, this is uh, uh, probably not. It could be the same man. Uh, we don't know for sure. But there's a, there's a Lazarus named. There's Abraham. Uh, and Jesus' other parables are, uh, were about life on earth. He doesn't use you know, settings in outer space and, and you know, heaven and, and things like that. Uh, he, he talks about you know, farmland and orchards and cities and, and, and things like that. So the story of the rich man and Lazarus doesn't have the characteristics that define a parable. I, it doesn't appear to be a parable. Uh, it's describing the afterlife. Now, we have to look at that in a new way. Let's think about what Jesus is teaching us and then relate it back to where we are in Revelation. First of all, the rich man. Now, don't get the idea the rich man went to hell because he's rich. That's not what the parable is teaching, and not so, that's the law. Bible is not teaching that people who have money will go to hell. Uh, it's, it's hard for, it, it's true, uh, it's, uh, Scripture says it's uh, hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it follows up by saying, well, with God, all things are possible. Uh, because, because people who are rich are, get all sorts of temptations that uh, are diff- uh, make them stray often from, uh, from obedience to God. Notice that Abraham and the rich man were both dead, but their spirits were alive, weren't they? Including their mental faculties. They're fully aware. They know who they are. They know who the other people are. The rich man knows who his brothers are and where they are. Uh, He remembers. He knows how many brothers he has, he specifically says. He knows, as I say, where they are. He knows that they're spiritually lost. He knows that they haven't repented. So even though they're, uh, they're dead, Lazarus and the rich man, even though the rich man's spirit was in hell, he was still able to feel, he could reason, he could remember, he could communicate, he could love. He could, she showed love for his brothers. He didn't want them to be where he was. He felt pain. This, you know, this, this horrible flames are tormenting me. He, felt, he was thirsty, terribly, terribly thirsty. He knew exactly where he was and he knew why he was there. He knew that Abraham and Lazarus were in heaven and he was in hell. So he was conscious. Abraham talked with him about his, adult, about his sinful life on earth and the rich man agreed he deserved his punishment. Uh, he remembered his family. He knew of events on earth. He was aware that, as I said, his brothers were still unbelievers. He knew they needed to believe the gospel in order to go to heaven. He knew that. Now that's light years of what he believed when he was on earth, isn't it? So, uh, in in many ways, he's more aware and is smarter than he was when he was on earth. Because now he knows that, boy, you need to hear the gospel, you need to believe the gospel in order to to go to heaven. So he begged Abraham, who in this story is a type of Christ, to save his brothers. He was able to formulate arguments. He attempted to reason with Abraham to convince him to send witnesses uh, to his brothers. So we learned there was no break in consciousness there, no loss of memory, no loss of what he knew. He was the same person he was on earth, uh, except more so he knew a lot more in hell than he ever knew when he was on earth. He knew the gospel, as I said, was necessary to be believed. So I don't think we can believe that he was this man in hell was more aware, more alive, more conscious than Lazarus in heaven, who was with God. Uh, we can't believe that he's more so than Lazarus. So I think it's fair to say Lazarus was at least as aware, if not more so. I suspect more so quite a bit. 
course, people are awake in heaven. The Bible teaches, we've seen, we'll continue to say they know where they are. They remember their life on earth. They recognize, they know the other people who are there. They even know what's going on earth on earth at this present time, I believe. And in a few minutes, I'll try to demonstrate that from Scripture. Now, remember when Jesus died on the cross, he was resurrected into his glorified body, his, his resurrection body. And as I mentioned earlier, the Bible calls that the first fruits of what we shall be like, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Meaning those who are physically dead. Christians who are physically dead. Believers who are physically dead. Uh, Now the body that Christ came back in, his resurrection body when he was on earth, he he died, he was resurrected, then he stayed on earth until he ascended into heaven, bodily ascended into heaven. Now, when he was on earth, after he was resurrected and still in his resurrection body, was he awake? Sure he was. Did he know where he was? Yeah. Scripture's clear on that. If you, if you read all the accounts of Jesus after the resurrection, uh, you know that he knew where he was. He, he, he knew other people. He knew his friends. He knew them by name. Uh, he went from place to place. Did he talk? Oh, yeah. Did he think and reason? Yes. And more than that, he said in Luke 24, 39, and we've talked about this before, he, when he appeared to his disciples, he said, Behold my hands and my feet. Now, remember, he's in his resurrection body. But he says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. It is I myself, Jesus said. Just because his body had died, it didn't matter. He was still himself. Now, a major theme of the rich man and Lazarus has to do with the last verse, which is uh, Luke 16, 13. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So Abraham says to the rich man, Hey, if they don't pay any attention to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Well, what's Moses and the prophets? That's the, the Bible. Moses, and that's just another way of saying the scriptures. So if they don't believe the scriptures, they're not going to believe it even if, you know, you send somebody back from the dead. And of course, someone has come back from the dead, Jesus Christ. But still people won't believe. Uh, Jesus said very much the same thing in John 5, uh, verses 46 and 47. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? A friend of mine told me he had to go to a funeral service for a, somebody who lived a very evil life. And his life was no testimony that this fellow was ever a Christian. Uh, and I, I think I may have told, told you this one before, but just remind you, the, uh, the minister had been asked to preach the sermon. And... Uh, How's he going to handle this? And uh, this guy was, I don't know what guy's name, let's call him Joe, uh, the, the dead man. How was he going to handle it? And uh, the, the minister, actually, he, he had some problems saying, how am I going to handle this myself? But he held up the, the Bible and he said, my friends, if Joe could come back from the dead and stand here right now, he'd tell you every word in this book is true. <laughs> so that's, that's how he handled it. And that's the testimony of this story. 
of rich man and Lazarus. The testimony is the Bible alone is sufficient to bring people to repentance and to salvation. The Bible alone is sufficient to bring people to repentance and salvation. But how many of us think, and we fall into the trap, that it's up to us to convince people to believe? That it's all on us that we have to convince them, we have to talk them into it. You know, if only I, I have a good argument for their objections. Now, we do need to, the Bible instructs us to give people a reason for the hope that's in us, so we do need to, to be prepared for, the, for that. But, you know, we, we, could, we think things like, oh, if I could only show them what Jesus has done for me. Uh, how many times have you heard that method of, of sharing the gospel? But believe, Jesus says, the scripture alone is all you need. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to have a degree in apologetics to be able to witness for Christ. You need the word of God, both written and in your heart. Your reasoning power, your rational arguments, your proofs from archaeology and your proofs from science and your appeal to their emotions or your experiences or their experiences, without the word of God, those are not effective. You can't argue someone into heaven. You can't reason him into heaven. You can't love him into heaven. You can't even come die and come back to convince them. As Jesus said, if somebody doesn't listen to the Bible, I'm paraphrasing here, it wouldn't matter if someone someone came back from the dead to try to prove it to them. They still wouldn't listen. And Jesus did come back from the dead, and many people still don't believe him. So what the rich man in hell advocated has a parallel right now, right today, in the evangelical world. Uh, have you ever heard of lifestyle evangelism? Does that ring a bell at all with anybody? Uh, it's, it's a term that's popular in some circles. Um, it says if you live a moral life, people will be so impressed that they're going to be drawn to you and be converted to Christianity because that's your secret. Now, that has some truth to it. Uh, we're to be shining lights, Jesus said. Our good works are to be displayed before men. Let your light shine before men in Matthew 5 that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But simply living your life morally, in quotes, is not going to bring people to Christ. And proof of that is, one proof of that is Mormons. Uh, everybody says, oh, they're among the most moral people, in quotes, around. Yet they lead millions of people to hell. Uh, So millions of people who lived to what the world appears to be a moral life, um, they're in hell. Because why? Because God doesn't decide who goes to heaven based on how many sins you commit versus how many good things you do, even though the world believes that, of course. God doesn't decide who goes to heaven based on how many good things you do versus how many bad things you do. Living a moral life is not the ticket to salvation. In fact, trusting in your moral life to save you is a ticket, but it's a ticket to hell. Only if you trust in Christ for his salvation, that will ensure that you go to heaven. And trusting him, what does that mean? That means receiving him as the Lord of your life. What does it mean to receive him as the Lord of your life? That means day to day, minute to minute, you do what he wants, and you don't always do what you want, especially if it conflicts with what he uh, commands. So he's the Lord of your life. You're not the Lord of your life anymore. Christ is the Lord of your life. What does he want you to do? Well, how do you know what he wants you to do? 
You read the scriptures. You look in the scriptures. You memorize the scriptures. And it gets easier and easier as it goes on to remember, oh, yeah, the Lord wants me to do it this way. Lord, Lord, you know, here's the situation. How, and pray and ask the Lord to open your eyes, show you uh, what to do from the scriptures. See, prayer is us talking to God. Scriptures is him talking to us. He said in John 14, He that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Again in John 14, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So the one who loves Jesus will find himself more and more doing more good and less evil. That's, as we know, called sanctification. But that's a result of the salvation by Christ. It's never its cause. The good things you do are the result of the Holy Spirit living in you. Good works are never going to get you to heaven. It's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Then the good works come from Him. We're created in Him to do good works, Scripture says. So lifestyle evangelism, I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, quoting from a book called Lifestyle Evangelism. The author says, quote, Lifestyle evangelism, finding common ground and earning the right to be heard, is the secret to lifestyle evangelism. Finding common ground with unbelievers and earning the right to be heard is the secret to lifestyle evangelism. That's wrong on so many levels. But there is no common ground between a Christian and a non-Christian who is an enemy of Christ. Because of original sin, we're all born with a corrupt love for ourselves and a denial of the lordship of the creator. And our reasoning power, our minds, our emotions are corrupt. We're born with a corrupt ability to reason. Um, Dr. Cornelius Van Til used to talk about a man's reasoning power, and I probably have said this again too. Hang around me too long, you'll keep hearing these same illustrations. But uh, if you remember the idea of the expensive table saw where a man has got this very expensive table saw and he adjusts it and perfectly with the dials gets everything right to make the exact cut he wants to make but he leaves the room and uh, his five-year-old son has come in and fooled around with the dials so he doesn't know that and he comes back and he tries to cut the board to a precise angle and it's off but he doesn't realize that because he doesn't know the child has played with the dials so he thinks he's cutting exactly the way he should be cutting but he's off And that's what man's reasoning power is. He thinks he's reasoning correctly, but sin has played with the dials, and man can't reason properly. That's why we bow our reason to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. That's why we say, oh, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem just. That's because sin has played with the dials. We don't know what's fair and right and just. But Scripture does. The Lord does. And that's why we bow our reason to him and the word of God. That's the only foundation for true reason. So there's no common ground between the Christian and unbeliever, except one thing. Romans says the law of God is written on everyone's hearts. Uh, An unbeliever, everybody knows there is a God. He knows he is created by that God, even though they want to deny that. Uh, and he knows he's guilty before that God. A few weeks ago, I remember meeting Harley Ballou, who came from Kerrville, the elder, uh, PCA elder from Kerrville. I was talking to Harley uh, later, and he told me something I thought was just really good. He said, he said, oh, I learned one time from someone that when you're talking with somebody who denies there's a God, 
uh, tries to argue with it. He's just cut right through it and say, why are you angry at God? Why are you angry at God? And he says, most of the time they will tell you why they're angry at God. (laughs) And then you can go from there. So, if you think you're going to convert people by impressing them about what a good person you are, arguing them about archaeology or something, um, you may make converts, but they don't believe the Bible. They'll be converted to lifestyle evangelism. They'll put their faith in themselves, and they'll put their faith in their own moral life rather than in Christ and the Word of God. Why do I bring this up? Because the rich man in hell believed in lifestyle evangelism. You might call him the father of lifestyle evangelism, the father of televangelism. It's in fact, he was ahead of a lot of the televangelists of today. They can't bring somebody back from the dead, but the rich man in hell said to Abraham, let's do a spectacular miracle to convince people. Bring somebody back from the dead, that'll convince them. And that kind of evangelism uh, is what the rich man wanted to do. And Abraham said, no, the word of God is sufficient. It's all anybody needs to be saved, the gospel. sent through men and women and children, the elect, whom God has chosen to proclaim and explain the word of God to a fallen world. Scripture says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Please turn to Revelation chapter 6. This is a parallel passage in many ways to our passage in Revelation 21. And also to the story of rich man and Lazarus. Revelation chapter 6, let's see, verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw unto the altar the, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud, cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And going over to chapter 7 in Revelation, beginning in verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these robes which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And when you read this, think of the rich man and Lazarus situation. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Sounds very much like Revelation 21, doesn't it? See, these are the same souls that were on earth. They have the same self-knowledge. They have the same individual persons. As Jesus said, it is I myself, and they could say the same thing. I'm not a ghost. I'm the same person you've always known. So, to conclude here, we learn from all of these passages we've read, people in heaven are separate individuals, these passages we just read, each one was given a white robe. Um, each person was given, each soul was given a white robe. They're individuals. Uh, and they retain their individual personalities. 
um, perfected, of course. They have their memories of life on earth, memories of their loved ones. The saints in heaven know of and love the saints on earth, as we just read out of Revelation. They still know us. They still love us. We are still brothers and sisters in Christ with those who are in heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ with believers on earth and the ones that are in heaven. We're all part of the same family. Physical death can't separate us. When we're in heaven, we'll still be part of one family with the believers still on earth. Just remember, death is not a wall of separation. It's a doorway of reunion. Let's pray. Lord, sear this truth into our hearts, Father, that... uh, that uh, as believers we should have no fear of death and we should have no fear of death of our loved ones, Father, who, who are just going before us on a journey and that they're starting a little earlier than we are, Father. It, it, uh, as, as we get older, we realize it'll be no time at all before it, uh, it'll be the, the wink of an eye that uh, we'll be with them as well. Uh, so, Father, let us not grieve as, uh, as do those who have no hope. Father, but uh, fill us with joy and expectation and, uh, and understanding from thy word, Father. Keep us in thy word. Keep us uh, in our family devotions and our individual devotions, Father, uh, on a daily basis, uh, hiding the word in our hearts, Father, uh, that we may uh, uh, be able to, to give a reason for the hope that is in us, as Scripture instructs us, Father. Uh, Lord, be with our our families, Father, as we uh, fellowship today and uh, uh, go out uh, into the world tomorrow, and uh, whether that is uh, uh, in our home responsibilities or uh, in our in our uh, work outside the home, Father, bring those who need to hear the gospel into our path. Uh, give us give us the scriptures to give to them, Father. Give us the ability to explain those scriptures to them, Lord, uh, and uh, open their open their eyes, Father, that uh, uh, that. Uh, they be converted, that the elect, there are many elect who are not converted yet, Father. But, uh, Father, we, uh, we ask that we would be the instruments of their conversion, Father. Uh, there's, we say, what can we do? We're just one person. We don't have uh, great scriptural knowledge, possibly. We don't have uh, all these things, Father. But uh, uh, we ask that uh, we would be given desire to learn thy word and uh, to share it with others, Father that uh, we may be on fire for lost souls, Lord. And Father, we also pray for the many sick and, and uh, those who are uh, suffering from illnesses of one sort or another, uh, both in our congregation and those who are our loved ones outside of it, Father, our family members, our unsaved family members, Lord. Father, we uh, ask that thou uh, wouldst uh, heal those diseases and those injuries, Father, that uh, in thy wisdom need to be healed, and, Father, bring them back to, to health. But most of all, Father, we pray for the salvation of their souls, and if they are already saved, Father, that, that these circumstances would be, bring glory to thee. For it is in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Twenty-three B from the uh, Red Salter.